Hi, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents. I'm your host, Sam Davies. And today we have on the show Grant Munro. Grant is based out of Toronto, Canada. He was the founder and CEO of Flashstock. Flashstock was a company that helped brands and agencies connect to create custom imagery. He has a background in, in software development and product management. He was at Nokia for a number of years um, and then worked uh, in the early days of social media, 2007-8. I jumped in and talked to him about yeah some of those early days, how he got into business and Flashstock, and then around the, uh, the purchase of Flashstock by Shutterstock in 2017, which is a massive acquisition, and then where, where he's going from there. So a really interesting conversation touching on the current landscape of, of content and marketing, um, the process of very quickly, rapidly scaling a business. We also touched on, on culture and, and especially how you can create values and a why for your business in a rapidly scaling environment. Uh, it was a pleasure to have Grant on. I uh, really appreciate his time. So uh, without further ado, let's jump straight in. I'm, I'm a software engineer by trade and sort of evolved through big company into a product management role okay. and uh, really wanted to sort of work in a smaller business. So joined a, a, a startup that was working in the digital media space, specifically around social media. And it was, they were kind of a funny organization. They were pretty much all services. And the, the founder of, I guess, really was an agency said they wanted to build a product and they wanted to productize it. And so this was around sort of 2007, 2008. Um, and so they were, their expertise was really within the social media domain. Uh, they were creating content. They were doing community management. They were building custom applications. Uh, but they had this really amazing roster of sort of Fortune 500 clients. And so I came in as the first like product person. Uh, and my first job was like, see all the stuff that we do and tell me uh, if there's a product here. Uh, and it became clear that there wasn't because it was all sort of throwaway type work. Um, but it's at the time, uh, their their clients who were these big brands were really struggling with the basics of workflow around social. So, you know, how do I get content approved? Where do I store it? Um, how do I review it? You know, how do I measure performance? And so basically built the first version of of what became the, the social media management category. Um, uh, through this company, and I, I was running the product organization. And so then an interesting thing happened is, you know, part of that company, they would do these like very social specific pieces of production work. And so it was really the stuff that the agencies didn't want to touch because at the time, you know, they weren't really making much money off of it. And surprisingly, when they started to, to remove that stuff from the business, the, the clients freaked, they lost their minds. They, you know, it was really important for them to have this low cost source of content. Um, and so that was like the first signal that, you know, there's something there around digital content that the current models just don't work. And so for the next few years, uh, that, that, that problem didn't go away. And, and if anything, it got worse. And then, uh, you know, I saw that, you know, no matter what size of brand, no matter, you know, what channels they're activating on, content was, was central to everything. And there was always this desire to do it better, faster, cheaper. Um, and so, you know, I always wanted to start my own company. So I decided to start a business around that um, with the, uh, the insight being, you know, we don't have to do it in one particular loca- location. If we can just match our clients to any creators around the world, 
depending on whether or not they're best suited to create that content, um, we could actually do it you know, at, at a much more scalable way. And so that really birthed the you know, Flashdoc 1.0, I guess. It's pretty interesting. Um, what, what was the catalyst for you sort of getting into social media and, and what platforms were we looking at back then, I suppose, in the early days of Facebook as a, as a public Well, it was our, so, so being Canadian, our biggest client was BlackBerry, the, the mobile phone provider. Um, and so I remember there were, they were investing heavily into the consumer space. And so they were traditionally an enterprise company and they wanted to be more consumer sort of at the time where it was Nokia and, and Apple and, and BlackBerry were really the leaders. And so they were investing a ton into digital and a ton into social. And they wanted to tell their story from the eyes of the consumer. And they were really focused on lifestyle content. And they were sending production crews around the world, shooting content on like beaches and skiing and, and the costs were exorbitant. Like it blew me away, these costs. And so I remember thinking, it's crazy that you're flying someone halfway across the world to shoot photography. Wouldn't it be easier just to find local people to shoot that photography? And then that's where the sort of insight came around um, uh, the global network. So Shutterstock Custom has a global network of creators and that sort of core to our value prop. Um, so started the company based on that insight and kind of messed up the positioning from the get-go. So we always thought uh, that we would be a good alternative to stock photography, which is ironic now having been acquired by Shutterstock. But, um, and that just didn't go anywhere. Uh, clients didn't seem interested in it. It wasn't exciting. As soon as you mentioned the word stock, it, it, sort of the conversation went flat um, just because there hadn't been a lot of innovation in that space for some time. And then this really interesting thing happened. Instagram. Uh, became like this amazingly viral, important, huge channel. And I started Flashdoc in 2014. So Instagram became really a thing in 2015, but they didn't turn on the monetiz monetization until 2000, end of 15, early 16. And so if you're a brand, you needed a presence on Instagram, but you couldn't promote any of your content. So it was all organic content. And so that meant that the cost to produce it had to be as close to zero as possible. Uh, and so, you know, to, to the end of 2015, 2016, we just had this huge swath of new business um, from these brands that were investing in Instagram, but could only put organic content on there and were really fo cost focused on cost, but still needed to align to the brand and it still needed to be consistent and all that stuff that we know today. Um, and that really helped us get a get a foot in the door. And then, of course, as they turned on the paid aspects of it, uh, things really started to take off. So, so what was the value prop of Flashdoc then, sort of around that around that era? So it was all about sort of cost, agility, and scale. Uh, so our first client. So, so the, the whole basic thing is if we can build a software platform that connects our clients, who are generally big brands, to a global network of creators. Those brands can brief in the creators and the creators can create custom content very fast and very cost effective because it's a network and we don't have any of the overhead and we can scale up and scale down super fast. And so the first client that we ever worked with um, was Anheuser-Busch Budweiser. And they, you know, and this is to explain the value prop. And so what they wanted to do is, um, you know, traditionally they'd used national level content. And so being US centric, U.S. like Australia is a very big country, and there's it's very diverse. And so they figured um, assets would perform better if we served them in in the region if the content was created in the region where the the consumer is sitting. And so rather, you know, in the middle of January, which is very snowy uh, in Detroit, 
showing me pictures of people playing volleyball on the beach on the West Coast, show me people having, you know, snow parties uh, with our product. And they thought that that would perform better. And so the, the, the first pilot project that we did basically had us taking pictures across 50 U.S. states, you know, all within a pretty short time period, um, all along the same central theme. And then they would take those assets and, and buy ads against them, but regionally targeted and, and test the performance against these national levels. And so we saw early on that the ability to scale through geography was really, really important. And so obviously cost is a big driver, but creating localized content, especially when you're a big global brand, is something that you know we know drives relevance, relevant, re- relevance which drives impact. Um, and to do so in a cost-effective manner is obviously really appealing. When you were putting together, um, you know, the, the first iterations of it, um, was it difficult trying to go out and find the the creators and, and build the network? I know it's often difficult in that sort of two tiered marketplace. Yeah, it's funny. So funny story. We, so when I when you start a company, you it's like you and a few people and and not much money and a big idea, and everyone sort of thinks you're you're bigger than you are because um, you sort of puff out your chest a little bit. Um, so yeah, we didn't really have any any photographers, and the initial the initial idea. Uh, which was wrong, was you know sort of broad based, almost like a like a marketplace yeah. challenge type environment where you sort of send out this request really broadly and you get a bunch of assets back. And so we actually tried to do that and and, and failed miserably. And that was like one of the painful learnings. Was it, it was really easy to find photographers, but it was actually quite challenging to find really good talented photographers. And so this notion of curation, not of just the content, but curation of the talent became really, really important because we know that if a brand gets an asset for it to be usable, it has to you know, meet the safety requirements, it has to be on brand, it has to be on brief, and all of this complexity sort of drives up the capabilities required for the creators. And so we found that it took us a while to sort of figure out our secret sauce, but once we had the profile and the segment of, of, of photographers that we needed, um, you know, they were relatively straightforward to uh, to go out and attract. Um, I would say it was a little more, it was a little trickier being a startup trying to acquire the customers on that side. Sure. Right. Uh, how, going back to that, that the big idea, how important do you think an idea is in in a startup? Yeah, it's funny. So this is um, this is a, this is a space. This is a, a topic that I I find actually pretty fascinating. And a couple things that, that I've learned, uh, especially now having gone through the journey, is it, you kind of think about it in multiple layers. And if, if you are, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you just want to start a business and, you'll, and you just cherry pick ideas that you think will work, I think that's where you get into a bit of trouble because the probability of that idea working is pretty low no matter how good the idea is because there's a ton of nuance and it takes a lot of discipline and cycles and energy to iterate and continue to make minor adjustments until it finally sticks. And if you're not convinced really at the base principle level that what you're doing is right, the chances of you just quitting are pretty high. Mm. And so I think the idea itself is not as important as opposed to like the vector or the market or the industry that you're going after is, is probably the most important thing. And then if you can align on like the principles of why you're doing it uh, and you have the energy to iterate, then, you know, more ideas will come. And I, I suppose your background um, in software development and development, having that sort of agile lean kind of mentality, I think a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs that get into uh, business early maybe don't have that sort of, uh, you know, 
agility and, and that ability to iterate. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of the things. So, you know, the, I think the two, the two most beneficial things on my background were the technical side. So in starting a tech company, you don't have the same sort of mental barriers that, that a non-technical person would have in terms of being able to build the actual software. But then my experience through, through the agency and building that product, it was very much customers facing. And so the ability to engage with customers, do sort of rigorous customer, customer development, trying to figure out what they do every day, what their problems are, sort of marrying those two things together allowed us to, to I'd say, have a pretty, pretty aggressive head start on some of our competition. When you talk to, well, at least when I talk to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, they tend to want to jump to the solutioning stage like right away. It's like, oh, I've got this idea and like, this is how it's going to work. Um, and really, because that's the fun stuff, right? But then kind of neglect the rigors around how you think about your customer, what their actual problems are, if they're just being nice to you, or is this, or is this something that they really need solved and would really want to pay for? And like, as an example, when you start out, out of the gate, no one wants to pay you anything. Mm. They all want to do a free trial because they're like, I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. How do we know this is going to work? And you can tell whether or not you're solving a really important problem is if they're willing to take that risk. You know, if they're willing to say, hey, I've never heard of you. You have no clients, but I'm, you know, here's 50 grand. Go out and try to solve the problem. That's like a really strong signal that you're able to actually find something. But the mentality of you know, recognizing that the probability of what you're doing isn't going to work, but building that into how you structure yourself is, is really important. It's interesting. I was talking to a guy yesterday who... Um works in innovation accounting, but he was talking about increasing the stickiness of a product to actually, yeah, to, to, to try and um, see if that, if that value prop is strong, right? So increasing the barriers to entry and if people are still going out of their way to, to yeah. get it, whatever it is, you can actually sort of test the, uh, test it that way. Yeah. It's, it, so when you're working with a big com- with big companies, you know, what, what I've learned, what I start to start to see is, especially with some of the notable brands who have no shortage of vendors pitching, pitching them, the hard thing the hard thing they have to do is sort of put their neck on the line to get you through procurement. And so mm. procurement usually is pretty locked down. And, you know, for you to, for them to create a new business case, to put a new vendor forth, a lot of it is reputational. And so they're putting themselves out there saying, Hey, we've got this great vendor. I know we've got a lot of vendors, but this one's doing something fantastic. I'm willing to back them. You know, that, that sort of ups the stakes. Um, on both sides of the game because you, you know you don't want to let them down it's less about the money and the transaction you know it's more about the reputation so so that was an interesting like human insight into that whole process for a startup that's interesting as well i mean because that comes back to the i don't know if you've seen that um uh, chart that's got sort of it's people uh, business and then technology and the, and the sweet spot in the middle where the, the three circles intersect is sort of uh, experience innovation right so i think a lot of startups have the you know they have they have a business case They'll come to someone for the tech, but like you said, they often forget the uh, the people side of it. But I think, yeah. especially in the kind of marketplace that you build initially, um, people are important on all three sides, right? So the, your, your customers, building those relationships, um, which you still oh, have yeah, to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And actually, so it, uh, not, not being a marketer by sort of historical discipline, being a software person, the importance of being able to explain your vision and your mission as a company isn't so much, well, I mean, it's very important for your customers because again, you're a startup, you have no legacy, so they have to believe in what you're doing. But it, it's, it's such an important thing for you know, the, the, the company, the employees of the company, 
the shareholders, the investors. It sort of brings that whole group together. And it's, for me, that was a big learning. It's thinking about you know the company as a product itself. And the, mm. what, the end product that you're actually selling your customer is just one component of that. So the journey from, so 2014, a flash stock is started. So, yeah. um, and so you, you were um, acquired by Shutterstock, which um, everyone will yep. be aware of Shutterstock. Um, what, what was that process like? And, and that, was that taken by surprise or was that part of the plan? Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. So um, it's, it's funny now that we've been acquired, I have a lot of smaller startups asking me like, oh, you know, how did you get acquired? We want to do that. We want to follow that route. Um, but the, the fact that this ever happens to me is somewhat of a miracle because so many things have to sort of line up. Uh, but to give some context, so in, in, you know, the, sort of kicking around the idea in 2013, sort of decided to do it full-time in 2014, um, raised a little bit of friends and family money, hired a few people. So at the end of the year, we were, I think, three or four people. Then at the end of 2015, you know, we had sort of uh, sorry, at the end of 2014, we had tweaked the positioning and tweaked the messaging and we kind of grew a little bit, but nothing really substantive. I think we were about 15 people. Um, and then in 2016 was like our banner year. Uh, you know, I mentioned Instagram. So we grew from 15 to 80. And then the following year, we had we only had half the year before we were acquired. Um, we grew to about 120. So we saw significant growth condensed on a, on a pretty small time frame. Um, I remember... When I started Flashdoc, uh, right from the get-go, we were working with a small team uh, to create a press release because it's like, oh, you, you start a company, what do you do? Is you, you register a domain, you build an MVP, and then you, you put a press release out, and then the customers will come flooding in. Um, the last part didn't really work very well. But, <laughs> so we wrote this like terribly written um, press release. And actually, I remember the, the, the person who was running who had the only person in the company that had a communications background was like, this is a terrible press release. But we just kept sort of editing it and, and resending it. Um, no one read it except for the, the corp dev guy at, at Shutterstock uh, who sent me a lovely email being like, hey, you know, I'm just doing my diligence in terms of the category in the industry. I'm, what you guys are doing is interesting. We'd love to keep in touch. Um, and he was a really friendly guy. And right from the get-go, he said, we have no interest in inquiring you because we are royalty-free stock photography. You're very different, um, and I thought it would be interesting just to, you know, stay connected in the in the ecosystem and know what everyone's doing. And so we stayed in touch for for a number of years, uh, and then, you know, it became clear that the, that the trajectory we were on and the trajectory they were on were sort of coming together, and we had a very similar vision and a very similar mission. And so we, we spent a bunch of time together and then realized, hey, we'd probably have a better chance of achieving what we wanted to achieve together uh, and so decided to make it happen. It's interesting, that sort of slice of luck, right? That, that, that the press release yeah, lands on that like one we never, desk. And it was actually interesting <laughs> during the process. So when you go through the diligence process, having really no desire to get acquired, uh, and sort of we were, as I said, we were growing really quickly, kind of helped with the discussion because if it ever got to too contentious of a negotiation, we would just say, hey, like, we don't have to do this. We're, you know, we're growing fine on our own. We can raise money. And it just really changed the, uh, changed the dynamic of the conversation. But, you know, with that being said, Shutterstock is a fantastic company, super supportive of everything we've done and continue to do. And I uh, couldn't have asked for a better partner. How was the, um, the growth from 15 to 80? And what was your role during, during that period? Yeah, it was pretty wild. We were, so because we were selling into the, we're selling into the enterprise. Uh, you know, we were heavily sales skewed, uh, and so you need people to pick up the phone and call the customer and, and, and try to make the sale. 
Uh, and so we were hiring uh, hiring a lot of salespeople. Um, I think the biggest you know the biggest lesson I learned was when you start really small, you've you've got this idea where oh we can you know we can provide content to these clients much cheaper than what they're getting now. You're not really asked about what's your vision, what's your mission, you know what are your values. Um, and then when we were growing, so when you're five or six people, no one no one asks you that because everyone knows what's going on. And when you're 15, most people know. When you're 30, people start to feel a little disconnected. When you're 80, it like completely breaks down. And so I kept on hearing sort of the same questions from the team over and over. It's like, what's the strategy? What 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 are we doing here? Why are we doing it? Um, and so, not you know, for me, never really understanding what true culture was. I I didn't really get the importance of it, but agreed to take a group of sort of the early employees offsite and sort of formulate vision, mission, strategy, and, and codify the values. So we went through the process. It was, it was, we got a third-party facilitator to come in. And keep in mind, we're 80 people at this point. So you know, we've got an established presence and an established company. And the, the, the people who weren't involved knew we were doing this. Um, so we, we agreed that we'd go off and we'd create vision, mission, and values. Uh, so we did that. It was, it, was a, it was a really fruitful session. And then when we came back, it had like the most positive immediate impact on the company that, that I've ever seen. When you're hiring, you, could, you can tell your story really easily and really consistently. And you can ask people if they're, if they're excited by it. So is that vision, is that mission something that you find important? Uh, you can build a strategy that gives basically every person in the company a piece of execution to help deliver against that mission. So it helps to create ownership. And then you have this really defined set of values that you could basically hire and fire against. And, you know, when things come up like, you know, should we tell the company this piece of information, you know, transparency was the value of us, we could always reference that uh, in order to support whether or not we should do something. And so I, I personally found it transformational in getting us over that hump uh, and getting everyone sort of flying in the same direction. Was that hard after coming back from the, you know, going, going and formulating that vision, coming back and communicating that to, you know, the rest of the team that worked Yeah, it, it was, for me personally, it was, it was hard. Um, just, you know, there's obviously a bit of ego involved. You're not sure how it's going to be received. Um, you know, but I think we did it, I think we did it correctly. So one of the things we did, we sort of presented it and we told the story of how we came. And then we, we got everyone in the company to break out into groups. Uh, and then for the values piece, write out behaviors that they think met those values and behaviors that they thought didn't meet those values. And then we use that as helping to develop the employee handbook. So it was really like in a, in a good way for people to, to internalize what we were doing. Um, if I were to do it all again, I would do that upfront. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it worked out really well in the end. So it was a good learning for me. And it's, it's actually interesting now working in a bigger company um, where you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people that haven't gone through that journey and so they haven't seen the sort of pre and post impact of not having a vision, mission, and value structure mm. to having one. Uh, and they, you know, sort of were in the same camp I was uh, and not really paying it as much respect as it sort of should be. So it's interesting to try to explain that to people that have worked at big company who have all that stuff established for years with sort of the corny, uh, the corny pictures on the walls when you walk through the office, really explain the importance of it. And you can see that it's just not quite sticking uh, for some people because they haven't really sort of gone that journey. And I, I feel I feel privileged to have been able to do that. Yeah, it's a conversation I have a lot with um, people, especially building sort of rapidly scaling businesses is um, 
I think the owners, and I've been through this myself with my business, you often feel as if, you know, it is a bit sort of corny and cliche to have to formulate this. Like when you're small and it's a few people, the culture is a sort of organic, right? But then when yeah. you have to sort of codify it and yeah, put 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 up the yeah, inspirational posters on the wall with our you know, vision, right. um, it, it can feel cliche. But I think that often, um, especially um, the staff that have team that have been through the process, they, they really do value it. Um, and yeah. it does become part of the, the DNA of the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it the it was probably the big, the best thing we did, and it had the biggest impact over that year than anything else. It was it blew me away. So, how big is the team now? Uh, we're about 120, but we are now um, we don't own the within Shutterstock. We're a business unit, and so uh, Shutterstock has a global sales organization. So then our product becomes one of the. The, the several products that are available to the sales org. And so we've grown, um, but then the, that doesn't include the, the salespeople. Sure. And so that's all based in Toronto? Or? We have some people in, in Europe. Uh, we have some people in the US and we have most of the people in Canada. Yeah, that's nice. Nice that you got to see yeah. that. Yeah, it's good. We're, we're starting to look at APAC as an important region for us. So okay. Australia is cool. actually very similar to Canada in terms of the structure. So the way the agency dynamic, uh, you know, they're very forward thinking. They have some of the same geographical constraints that we have. Uh, and so that we're looking at APAC, um, New Zealand, Australia being our next key markets. So, so going back to content, which is the the core of, of what you're doing, you you talk you touched before around localization, and I think especially yeah. in in the region we're in, I know a lot of Australian agencies have um, been playing around with some of YouTube's tools in terms of you know what you can do in terms of you know real real micro localization or personalization as well of content. Um, what 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 are you seeing sort of trending in that area? So we generally see that sort of big brands are, are lagging behind some of the smaller uh, incumbents across most industries. Um, you know, if you're a small, let's say, you know, CPG beauty brand that have a, you know, strong purpose around a particular product style or ingredient type, you're able to get very, very targeted and you're able to carve out a little segment of your audience that that's really loyal to you because of the alignment in terms of their values and your values. We're seeing that as a big struggle for big brands. And so they're trying to figure out you know, how do they maintain the scale that they're, they're currently hitting while catering to these smaller subgroups and these smaller audiences. And so it could be geography, it could be lifestyle, it could be segment. Um, there's a whole bunch of different ways to cut it. They're all now changing and sort of reacting to this environment. They're, you know, they're, they're rethinking their own capabilities. So they're rethinking whether or not they should work directly with an agency. They're, they're thinking what type of skill set they should have in-house what, what skill set they should outsource. Um, they're much more open to testing new technologies like Flashdoc, Shutterstock Custom. Uh, and so we're seeing that big shift, really seeing because the, the mass generic stuff in terms of performance is really dropping off. And how, I mean, I suppose at the core of your business is, is, is content and, and that, that's going to be consistent throughout whatever sort of delivery platforms there. there. But I mean, in the, in the, since, since 2007 and sort of the days at BlackBerry, you know, 11 years, how much the landscape has changed. What do you sort of see on the horizon? Like what, what's, what's changing? In- so I, I think it's interesting. I think, you know, when, when, again, this is like very social, like the social media aspect. Yeah. When social first came out, you sort of saw like they would build content, like they being brands would build content specifically for social. And then it, it kind of got to a point where they just stopped doing that and they just stopped. The, the frequency really changed and, and it was just like another channel and, you know, you keep it healthy. But I, it feels like the creative over the last couple of years has really surfaced again and 
really becoming really, really important. And it's almost like the, the technology is taking a backseat. And so, you know, pre sort of 14, 15, it was all about your tech. It was all about your stack. And it was all about, you know, that was the, all the rage at, the, at all the big conferences. That stuff seems to be a little more commoditized. So the, the magic of it is gone, the, the, myst- the mystery of the tech piece. And it's, it's allowing good, good creative to surface again. Uh, which is great for our business. Um, you know, it's great because we live and breathe creative every day. So it's nice to see that that's taking the forefront. And it's even things like team structure. So, you know, the creative parts of the teams working with the media side and working, you know, much more attuned, much more closely together. Big platforms like Facebook and Instagram recognizing the importance of creative in terms of ad performance and creating programs specifically for that. Uh, so it's, it's almost like feels like it's a bit of a renaissance, which is nice. Yeah, the um, I I think you're right in terms of the technology taking a back seat and the you know the, the platform or the audience or the, you know, the the actual medium becoming more important. But then on the flip side, the technology within those platforms has become better for actually delivering content. Yeah, hundred percent. I just think people are just more comfortable with it. You know, the the marketers are getting younger and uh, more tech savvy, and it's the people that grew up with this stuff all the time, and it's putting way more pressure on the vendors to provide actually software that works and is usable and isn't horrible. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just, it's just becoming, it's becoming better, which is nice. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting world for marketers having to navigate the very quickly changing landscape of what tools are available. It seems that they change every couple of days, but it's, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot out there. I don't envy the RFP selectors. That's for sure. So what's, um, what's in the future for, for you guys? What's, what's happening? So, you know, I think a big part is how do we take our value prop? Uh, so if you think of Shutterstock, Shutterstock is a big uh, e-commerce platform that 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 sells, buys and sells asset. Uh, and so customer is really focused on big big organizations uh, servicing, you know, large marketing budgets, large marketing campaigns. We're looking to bring our capabilities into the into the e-commerce world. So be a bit more self-service, be a bit more lower touch, and be able to provide. The services that we provide big brands to sort of smaller brands and big incumbents. So that's something that's really exciting for us. And the technology and infrastructure that, that Shutterstock has provided us from all the work they've done on the AI side, on the content management side, is really enabling some of those workflows. So, so we're pretty excited about it. I think there's a huge market for that because, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of smaller brands that that want to be able to play, you know, with the, with the same kind of quality of content and, and things like localization that some of the you know the big brands um, are able to do financially. So, being able to provide those tools is is pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's a huge market opportunity, and it it is hard though, right? Because you know, with the big brand, you're you're working over multiple campaigns and multiple projects, and people start to understand the look and feel, which translates into better work. Um, when you're doing it with the smaller brands, they might not have thought that through as well. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's really important that they spend time in those right areas to, to actually get creative that performs well. That's an interesting point. Like how, how much does strategy play into to what you guys offer? I mean, is, is, it, is it more so just um, putting people together or does strategy? Yeah. So, we're, I mean, we have an interesting vantage point because we're working with, you know, hundreds of different clients across hundreds of different verticals. And so we see when there's a, a deficit of strategy and when there's a surplus of strategy. Um, and, you know, the best examples is when, you know, there it's been thought through from top to bottom in terms of how all this comes together. Uh, and it really helps, it really helps the stakeholders on the client side be able to explain clearly the types of things that they want. Uh, so if they don't have that, those structures and those frameworks to, to reference when they're making decisions about what assets they want to use, it makes it really challenging for everyone. And, and so one example 
is this notion of, of the look and feel. Uh, and so we've seen a big shift in terms of how brands think about that. When you, ask a, when you ask someone who works at a big brand to define their look and feel, the chances that two people explain it in the same way is like pretty low. And so that makes our job obviously really hard when we're trying to communicate to creators all around the world what the brand identity is. And so we've developed a framework that allows them to basically explain what they think it is. And then we capture it in a really simple structured way, sort of present it back to them. And then they can determine whether or not that's right. And what's really interesting is brands that are completely completely off the charts in terms of agreeing or not agreeing. Uh, you know, so we're seeing that although we're focused more on the executional side, if we sort of push our requirements upstream, it forces some of these clients to think about, okay, yeah, how do I explain my look and feel in a really clear and concise way so that I can push that decision-making downstream and I don't have to depend on, say, a creative director to approve everything. So that, that's helping sort of flush, almost like reverse engineering the strategy for them. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose that um, helps to um, create the quality that you want on, on the other end from the from the creative side. So if you can- Oh, totally. I mean, garbage in, garbage out, you know. Yeah. So uh, and actually, it, it, that's why this creative space is such a hard space because if you, you know, you want to provide some creative freedom to the people creating the content, but you also want to be able to explain what the, the vision and direction from the client is. So it's always a bit of a balance. Yeah, nice. If you're going to leave our listeners with a, a thought, I mean, let's let's take it from the more of the startup side. So if you're if you're thinking about yeah. you know getting into uh, the entrepreneurial space or starting your own business, what what's one thing that you would uh, you recommend to keep in mind? Yeah, talk is cheap. Just do it. Nice. <laughs> I think um, yeah, I think there's an overabundance of ideas and a and a shortage of actual doing, um, and that's a you know if you if you're if you really want to do it. Uh, it's not going to work unless you actually do it. So, I couldn't agree more. If people want to find out more about um, sort of Stock Custom or, or yourself, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can go to Shutterstock Custom website. So if you just Google Shutterstock Custom, you can go directly there and you can get a ton of information. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and then, yeah, you can tweet at me, Instagram me at gmonroe123. Awesome. We'll chuck those in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time, mate. Really appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Good chatting. Awesome. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Hi, everybody. Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you, Grant, for your time. If you do want to find out about Shutterstock Custom, you can head to custom.shutterstock.com and find out more about the product and the service they offer there. If you want to connect with Grant, like you said, you can find him on LinkedIn. Just search Grant Munro. M-U-N-R-O um, and you can grab him on Twitter at gmunro123 If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like to hear more of what we do head to your favourite podcast app and just search Digital Noir or Digital Noir Presents you'll find us there we would really appreciate it if you do enjoy listening if you could leave us a rating it helps, uh, helps our visibility so we can get this out to more people and continue to have these brilliant conversations So thanks so much for your time and we will catch you in a couple of weeks. Cheers. Bye.